hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Have you ever met a real Renaissance man? We're excited to share the story of one today, one who came out of the closet and did so during a very difficult time and place. In addition, we chat about his work with the likes of Puff Daddy and Lenny Kravitz. Finally, we'll see what today is making him a Renaissance man all over again. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. Okay, let's see if this card goes through for that $8,000 drink. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody wants to get part of the in crowd. Everybody wants to to look good. My my decision was, I'm not a victim. I'm not going to stay and work someplace where this is a problem. Normally we don't drink on queer money, but because we're talking about a subject that David is rather vanilla on... Grab a glass of wine, because you're listening to Queer Money with the Debt Free Guys. This is the only show helping our community do more and be more by talking about money from the queer perspective. Well, welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. Today, we are very excited to be hosting Emil Wilbecken. He is a... um, I think we've had people on our show before who have claimed to be a Renaissance man, um, maybe me in particular. <laughs> but um, Emil is definitely a Renaissance man. Uh, he got into journalism uh, out of college and uh, graduate school and quickly rose through the ranks and became an editor of Vibe magazine which in the 90s, which was a hip-hop magazine, and uh, has since moved to Essence magazine and has moved on from that to uh, host his, uh, to, uh, his own platform on Tumblr called The World of Will Beckin and some of the other projects that he's working on we'll discuss later. So welcome, Emil. Thank We're you. happy Thank to have you. you. Thank Glad you. Here. So to give our, uh, our guests or our listeners a little bit of better context on, on who you are, do you mind uh, giving us a, a brief uh, biography? Sure, sure. So basically when I was growing up in Cincinnati, I was in love with the idea of um, storytelling. I love photography. I loved magazines, books, movies, you name it. And so I went to um, Hampton University. I studied mass media arts. I then um, went to London through a program with Boston University where I studied British media and advertising. And that was really awesome because while I was there, Um, I saw this movie called Looking for Langston, which is by Isaac Julian, who is a very like a fine arts um, kind of director. And that movie was kind of a turning point for me to come out. And so I came out while I was in London. And then when I returned back to the States, I went to Columbia Journalism School. And while I was at Columbia, I focused on magazine journalism, but also cultural reporting. And so that was like really, really great for me because my one of my professors was like, you know, you go to all these hip hop parties and you listen to this music. And this was in the very, very early stages of hip hop in the um, in the late 80s and early 90s. And so he said, why don't you think about writing about that? And I was like, OK, sure. Sounds like fun. Um, 
that led to, I gra- after graduation, I went to work at Metropolitan Home Magazine, and I was there for two years. But while I was there, I got plucked to be one of the founding editors of Vibe. And so when I was at Vibe Magazine, um, I literally was there before it had a name. I was one of the founding editors, along with like five other editors. And we really kind of worked with Quincy Jones and Time Warner um, and Time Inc. to create something that would be kind of the rolling stone of urban culture. And um, I worked my way up the ranks. I started as associate editor, and then I became style editor, and then I became fashion director. And then I got this amazing call to become the editor-in-chief. So I was there, which is going to sound crazy in this day and age, but I was there for 11 years. So my career really was built there. Um, After I left Five, I went to work with Mark Echo, um, and I worked with him for about a year. And I learned this was really great for your audience because I was terrified about going to work with Mark because I was going to work on the business side and, and run marketing. And I was like, I don't think I know anything about business. And I was like, no, you really do. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. And <laughs> he's like, no, you do. And what was awesome was that I didn't realize that I had all the skills and business acumen that I needed to work in business. It just had always been funneled through magazine publishing. And so that was really, really cool. And then I went off on my own and kind of did a lot of freelance writing and blogging and started working um, on the World Wide Web with AOL, Black Voices. And then I started blogging for LeBron James. So I did that for about two years, which was really awesome. And I learned a lot more about basketball than I ever knew. (laughs) Um, but I also got to learn a lot about his philanthropic endeavors in Akron and Cleveland. And I also got to travel around the world with him. So that was really cool. Um, and then I'll speed it up. I went to work at Giant Magazine where I became editor um, in chief. And I also oversaw the website. And then I was recruited by Time Warner to come work at Essence Magazine to oversee their website, which I did for like two and a half years. And then I went to go work. Um, on the magazine side to oversee all their talent relations, so covers, their Essence Music Festival, um, and so and their other tentpole events. And then I left because I was laid off as part of the separation of Time Inc. and Time Warner. And I called my vision coach. She's not a life coach. And I was like, oh, devastated. Like, I got laid off. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, congratulations. The universe gave you exactly what you asked for. Um, So I went to India for six weeks on my Eat, Pray, Love tour to figure out what I wanted to do. And while I was there, I was like, well, why did you, what did you initially love when you moved to New York? What was your dream? And my dream was to work and move culture, particularly um, around multicultural um, and black issues. And so I started World of Wilbekin, which kind of focuses on living your life authentically through the lens of culture, style, photography and art and excellence. And then I launched last year a um, vertical out of that called Native Sun, which specifically focuses on black gay men. And that's where we are. She well, was tired. A, right. I, like, I just ran through the marathon of your life. <laughs> and I've accomplished nothing in my life. Bill, it's it's David. I have a I have a question for you. Um, yes. Back at the very beginning you talked about 
when you came out. And it sounds to me like you went to college and then it was after your initial stint in school and you're traveling that that's when you decided to come out. Is that correct? Yes. So you and were probably in your early 20s? Yes. Okay. Yeah, early 20s. Right. Which I think for many people today may may be a little bit surprising. Um, it's a little bit more common of people from our generation that that's that it was in our early, mid, sometimes even late 20s that we felt comfortable coming out, which is yeah. kind of a, a shift, a cultural shift for our community since today we see so many young people coming out in their early teens and sometimes even before that, especially I see some of these uh, these children who recognize early on that they are uh, that that they are not their gender identity is something that they've been questioning from the very beginning so it's it's a, a very different um, mindset that I think people come from who were born in or are part of the, the that time frame people were born in the 60s and 70s I was born in 1970 and I I understand excuse me understand and and reflect on how different society was back then yeah yeah i mean it was a different age and you have to remember like my parents are older like my mom like i'm 49 now my mom is 86 so also you know being raised by older parents you know they were very like you know you don't come out you know so that wasn't really super supported in my household but you also have to remember that um as as I was coming up is also when the AIDS epidemic was growing. And so that was, it was kind of terrifying. It's like, well, do you want to come out? Mm -hmm. Because it almost equaled a death sentence in many ways. Um, so that was just a very different and scary time. Um, and so now for me, it's so exciting to work with young people who I mentor or who I meet through Native Son. Um, or work on various projects with who are so much younger and come out early and are so confident about their identity and their sexual preference and, and just know who they are. It's super duper cool. Yeah. yeah. It baffles me sometimes when we meet some younger kids and, and they're already out and I'm like, wow, how do you, I, I think I, I refuse to accept it for so long. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have, to have the opportunity to be able to accept it when you were younger, to me, it's just it's just baffling. It's, so sometimes I'm like, "Are you sure you're okay?" They have more role models now. They've had more examples on television. I mean, it's wonderful. You know, yesterday they had the Academy Award um, nominations came out, and it was amazing that Moonlight mm -hmm. is yes. the best picture. It's like. I mean, imagine if we had a moonlight when we were teenagers. <laughs> we would be right. much more advanced and, and comfortable with who we are. It's interesting you say that we, we had a director of um, several short gay-themed films uh, as a guest on our podcast. I think it was maybe episode eight or nine. And mm -hmm. we were talking about how for many of us, it was the, the small glimpses that we saw in movies and something sometimes on TV that kind of inspired us a little bit when we were younger. We yes. think about episodes of the Golden Girls, or <laughs> you know, yeah. and, 
I was raised in a very. You still watch the Golden Girls? They're coming to Hulu, so yay! Right. I was raised in a very, very religious household. So when my parents would leave from time to time, I would go to the video store and I would check out videos that I would look for ones that maybe had a gay theme to them because that helped me deal with who I was until I finally came out in my mid twenties. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of relevant for a lot of um, people from our generation. Like we, we had to find it, you know, wherever we could. And and that's why I would, you know, that story about looking for Langston was so powerful to me because I was really struggling in college with, I knew that I was gay. I mean, listen, I knew probably in high school, I mean, I remember watching, and this is going to sound so crazy. <laughs> I remember watching the Olympics and being like, so fascinated with Greg Luganus. Like, I was <laughs> And like, you know, and he's a gold medalist and he's got an awesome body and he's brown and looks like me. Um, and my parents were just like, wow, you really love diving. And I was like, yeah, exactly. He's a 10, he's a 10, he's a 10. He's a 10 across the board. Um, but you know, those moments. And so when looking, when it was funny, I was in, I was looking at Time Out London and I saw this photo for the the movie looking for Langston and I was like wow two black men who are naked but very artfully and like in bed and it looked like kind of a man ray photo or something and I just was like what is this and I kept reading and I was like what's well, the poetry of Langston Hughes so I was like I didn't know Langston Hughes was gay and then it was like um and this movie that's set in the Harlem Renaissance was set in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was just like, wow. And I went to see it and I felt liberated watching this film. Did you feel a sense that that, that was an option for you now? Um, absolutely. Out gay I mean, man? Uh, yeah, I kind of... It was because I had a a photography teacher in high school who was a former GQ model. He had studied painting under Picasso and he was really hot, but more importantly, he was just this really gracious man. And he definitely took like an interest in me, but it wasn't like weird or anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I always remember him, Mr. Ferguson and just being like, wow, like this man looks like how I see myself or how I would want to see myself as I get older. Like he was professional and he was really good at what he did. But the fact that he had studied, you know, put painting under Picasso, he had been a model in New York and then he decided to be a school teacher. I thought, well, wow, that's really awesome. Like what a great kind of role model for me to have growing up. And so he, I really kind of fixated on him and, um, and just kind of how I would see myself. So, you know, I, when I came out, it was really hard for me because I think it was, you know, I, I still get notes and text messages and comments on social media from young men who are like, thank you for being out when you were at Vibe because you really set the stage to let me know that it was okay and I could see someone that looked like me. So I kind of, it was kind of like I passed it on. Right. right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, please. So here you are, a 20-something black gay man in journalism. 
and you start writing for a hip hop magazine mm-hmm. and hip hop then, and even today, I, would, I, I think isn't necessarily, or wasn't necessarily embracing of the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. How did you overcome the inherent challenges that came with that? Well, a lot of it was that um, when we started the magazine, the first editor in chief was Jonathan Van Meter, who's a he now writes for Vogue magazine. He um, was out; he was a white out gay man, and so several of the editors were also, you know, out gay men. So we all kind of were like, "Well, this is who we are," and so. And, and many editor, male editors in publishing are gay. So it kind of was like, well, we're these young kind of maverick trailblazing gay editors. And so it was kind of part of the, the internal cultural corporate culture vibe. And um, the thing is, I had already I was already out. So it wasn't an option for me to kind of go back into the closet. And then I had, you know, this parallel experience of as Vibe was starting. I was in a very big relationship with a guy that I was with for four years. And so he would come to some of the parties with me. So I'd be introducing him to like Russell Simmons and other people as my boyfriend. And everyone was kind of cool because it's New York City. Um, So when I became editor in chief, it definitely crossed my mind, like, what in the world am I about to, you know, what is this Pandora's box that I'm about to open? But it was one of those moments where I realized that I had to live my truth and I had to be authentic. And I was definitely going to push boundaries and be out and gay and kind of just see what happened. And that's what I did. And so it wasn't always the easiest thing um, to deal with some of the artists and some of the executives and also some of the advertisers, because this was in the early, you know, late 90s, early 2000. And believe it or not, people were still a little like, yeah, I don't know about this. Like, it seems like the magazine's super gay and like they're doing all these kind of like DL hip hop stories and different things. And then with the, but with mostly with the artists, they were very respectful. Like a lot of the rappers, believe it or not, were super respectful because, you know, I, I tell this analogy a lot is that being in hip hop is about keeping it real in quotes, right? Mm-hmm. And so keeping it real means being your most authentic self. So there was a part of it that they really respected the fact that I was this gay dude who was like, I'm gay and I'm, I love hip hop and I'm the editor of this magazine and you have to deal with me. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think in many ways, I helped push the culture forward. So, so was that the kind of conversation... So I got to ask the question a little differently. I think that there's a lot of young people today, and I think maybe not even just young people, individuals who are not out, Mm -hmm. and they have a conversation going on in their head that oftentimes is one that um, prevents them from living authentically. Yes. Is the conversation that you were having in your head one of, I have to be authentic because I'm working with this group of people who says we have to keep it real. And if I don't, I might be risking looking like a fake in front of all of them. Right. I think that was part of the conversation. I think part of the conversation was my own kind of integrity. Right. So like how, you know, 
how do I live a life that I can look in the mirror and be comfortable with myself? And so that was the first part of the conversation. And the second part was I'm working in this culture that, you know, doesn't always approve of homosexuality, but does approve of a lot of authenticity. So how do I strike that balance? And there was no way that I was going to go in the closet. I mean, that would have been crazy, like to go back into the closet. And there was no way I was not going to take this job. So um, I kind of had to find that balance. And it was, you know, my friends were very supportive. I think some of my friends kind of pushed me to, you know, like I remember like a couple of gay prides. I did parties where like one year I had Mary J. Blige perform and they were fundraisers. And another year I had little Kim perform. And so that kind of pushed me also like, how do you bring those worlds together? Mm-hmm. Thanks. So I'm going to dive into this, um, you getting this chief editor position. So the, the position comes open. Did you apply for it or was it offered to you? So it was offered to me because I had been there and I'd kind of worked my way up the ranks. My, my editor-in-chief, when she resigned, recommended that I replace her, and I had no idea. Nice. And as the story goes, <laughs> I was in Paris because I was the fashion director, and I was shooting. Um, it was Puffy's birthday, and I was hanging out. Um, and we were doing a shoot cause he was having this big birthday party there and he was doing a shoot with like Kate Moss and Vogue. And, um, I got this call and I was like taking a nap or something cause I was going to go to this, you know, hang out all night. And I got this call and, I'm, and she was like, I'm leaving, I'm resigning, but I recommended you to replace me. And I thought, huh? <laughs> Because I'm thinking like, oh, she's leaving. I got. I have to find a new job because I had, I had made this kind of agreement with myself that like we had had like maybe she was the fourth editor in chief um, since the magazine had launched, and I was like, I don't know if I can deal with like another editor in chief, a new boss. Mm-hmm. Um, never thinking that I would become the boss. And um, that night was so interesting because I hung out with Puffy, Lenny Kravitz, um, Kate Moss and Stella McCartney. And <laughs> I, I'm was, sorry. I'm, I'm laughing here. I just wish you could see the, you all could see the video of John's face because <laughs> I think Lenny Kravitz is one of the most beautiful men in the entire world. <laughs> so sorry. That's completely off topic. <laughs> So, you know, and it was funny, like Puffy was in one ear like, oh, you should tell your boss that I want to be on the cover. I have an album coming out. And then Lenny was in the other ear, like, I've never been on the cover of Vibe. You should talk to your boss. (laughs) And I'm in my mind like, well, I'm about to be the boss. But I was, she told me I couldn't tell anybody. So because obviously, you know, there's, you know, interviews and, and processes and procedures and things like that that have to happen. So I just was like oh my God, this is like surreal. So then when I, the next day I flew back to New York, the matrix is on on the plane and just like, oh my God, it's like, which pill do I take? (laughs) Um, And so I just started writing stuff down. Like, so it was kind of, you know, it was, it was very, very surreal, but it was one of those moments where life kind of presents something to you and you have to make a choice. I'm glad you, you took it there because I think a lot of people in your position would have had two concerns. One, here you are offered this position or recommended for this, this position um, as a chief editor, which is a very prolific position. And this is 
make you more high, high profile, especially as an app gay man. And the other is just simply being feeling that you're, you're prepared for the position to begin with. Are you, do I have the knowledge and experience to be able to, to run this successfully? So how did you, what was your thought process to overcome those two, I would assume, inherent concerns to see this as an opportunity and not something to shy away from? Well, I kind of realized that I knew it was a great opportunity. I mean, my dream had been to become an editor-in-chief of what I was, in my mind, would be my own magazine. And this was, you know, pretty close. Like, this really aligned with everything that I was interested in, my vision, my creativity, um, and my interests. So there was that piece. The piece about coming out, I mean, not coming out, but kind of being more out in this position was a bit scary, but it, it again, felt like more, these both felt like challenges, right? They felt like the next level. And so it was, I've always been the person to like really go for the next level versus to run away from the next level. And I'm actually really glad I'm having this conversation with you guys because it's very applicable to something I'm dealing with right now. Um, so yeah, you kind of had, I kind of realized I needed to push through and, you know, the thing that I would say to your listeners is that it's not about being comfortable. It's about the discomfort and finding, you know, finding your way and through the discomfort. And I think that that is really hard sometimes and scary, um, but it is also part of the kind of creative process and part of the growth process that we experience in life. So, you know, we're not here to kind of be stagnant. We're here to grow. And so in new seasons, sometimes it's very, very uncomfortable. Right. The pearl doesn't grow without the, the, the pressure, the grain of sand causing. Right. Yeah. The discomfort and the pressure. Right. That's awesome. I love that. It reminds me of, you know, when I was getting pushed out of, I was working for a Fortune 500 company and um, things were really, really awesome for many years and all of a sudden they, they went sour really quickly. And I went into a state of depression for a couple of weeks, nothing extensive. And it took, after about two or three weeks, Dave and I both realized that this isn't, this isn't a problem. This is actually an opportunity because yeah. we aren't doing, we, at that time we weren't doing what it is that we wanted to do. Um, we were doing what was comfortable, what we were used to, and what everybody else around us was doing. Um, right. And then we thought, you know, this is an opportunity for us to do what we want to do. Let's give my notice. Let's leave. It's going to be scary. Yeah. It's going to be uncomfortable. We'll have to refine, uh, re restructure our budget. Um, but it's a sign. And right. so I think what you just said there is, is a great, I think, a great lesson for a lot of our our listeners. So those who are struggling, those who might still be living in Cincinnati and wondering, how do I go from Cincinnati to Cincinnati to New York or to Paris? Um, you know, this is a this is a great inspiring story. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's not easy all the time. <laughs> you know, we want it to always be easy, but it's not. And I feel like you know, once you um, kind of reach this next level, it's like opportunities show up. And so you really, you know, I'm very spiritual and you really have to have faith over fear. And I think that sometimes it's easy to get stuck in the fear part, but you've got to push through and you've got to um, learn the lessons that need to be learned through the process. Right. And so, I think, 
I think your the story that you told is also applicable because I think a lot of a lot of us think a lot of people think that you know once I reach a certain level everything else will just become easier. And here you are. At the time, nobody knew that you were the chief editor, but here you were the chief editor, and you had Puff Daddy in one ear saying, "Get me on your cover of your magazine," and Lenny Kravitz in the other saying that. And so here, are these, here are two people who I think most of us would say are very highly successful and have accomplished everything they could ever want to accomplish, still marketing and promoting themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's and I think that's the thing is that you never stop marketing and promoting yourself. <laughs> right. You know, that's you know in whatever you are doing because. You know, your story changes, what who you change, the world changes. Um, it's been very interesting for me this year because I was used to be like all over Instagram and posting like six times a day. And then I worked with someone who was helping me to fine tune my own social media, but also help me build the social media for Native Son. And he said three times a day. And I was like, okay. And it was harder to do three times a day versus six times a day because I had to be very thoughtful about, well, what are the three things that I would want to say? And now in the new year, I find myself, some days I don't post at all. And it's weird because it's like a pulling back, but it was, but now I'm getting more followers by posting less. So I think it's like you have to kind of go with the ebb and flow of life, but also what's happening in culture. And there's so many, there's so much change and uncertainty right now and doubt that it's, it's, that feels uncomfortable. So then it's also hard to stay the course of like, what is important to you and, and how are you growing and learning through all this chaos that's going on around us? Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I think one of the, th the concerns that I've had since um, the election is that I feel like a lot of us are very distracted. Um, and not that, not that the election isn't important and the outcome of the election isn't important. I just wonder, I, I don't, my concern is that we have a lot of people in our, our community who are kind of getting so myopic in their focus on one thing that they're, they're, they're losing focus in other areas of their life, which actually have more of an immediate impact on their life. No, I agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm right there, and it's you know I'm used to be a news junkie, and now I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I want to watch that. <laughs> it's you know it, it can be devastating. Just you know the signing of you know repeals or or taking down you know the LGBT pages on the White House website. I mean, those things are um, demeaning, and I think that it's important though, that people are focused on, you know, themselves and kind of building their spiritual selves and their, you know, professional selves and their personal selves, but also how do you get involved, right? So how do you have um, an active voice and presence? And even if it's local politics or it's, you know, a gay center in your town or, you know, a school board, you know, which is the analogy someone made on the panel last night. I think we have to be involved in some way so that we also don't feel like victims. You know, the Women's March, I think, is a great example of people coming together, organizing, and look at how many women came together across the globe 
to stand up for their presence and their rights and their freedom of choice. And I think that this is the age that we are, are entering into. So I think it's, it's hard not to be distracted by all of it, but I think it's also important to remember to feed yourself and to feed your soul and to um, remember what's important to you. I'm glad that you brought all of that up. John and I just recorded a podcast and we'll have been live for a couple of weeks talking about this specifically that in this time period, which many people are labeling Trumpocalypse, um, <laughs> that we can remember 10 years ago, 12 mm-hmm. years ago, 15 years ago was when a number of people in our community got their strength. That's when they found their strength and yeah. they're, they carried our community through some of the most difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, individuals who were recognizing that we need to have a voice and we need to be vocal and that we need to do things and that so much of what we can do mm-hmm. is at that local level. And that's one of the things that we were encouraging people to do. Get involved with your local advocacy organizations. Find out what's happening at the state level. What are the laws that are that need to be updated or changed at the state level? That's how we we can't change what's we can't change the White House. I mean, the, the reality is it's the, it is what it is now. But yeah. what we can change is we can change things that are happening at the local level and yeah. prepare for what's going to happen in two years and in four years. We have to have that in the back of our mind, but we also have to do what we can do right now. We can't just sit back and continue to lick wounds for too long. (laughs) No, no. And it's, I mean, and and that's a great point you make because I think people forget like, you know, our, our freedom has, has been short lived. And so it's important that we continue to fight and that we continue to be activists and advocates and be informed because, um, things can change very quickly. So the more, you know, knowledge is power. So the more, you know, um, I think the better you are. And then also we have to remember, we come from, you know, a community and ancestors who fought for us. Right. right. So the day after the election, like right when I met you guys, um, you know, it's, I was happy to be in San Francisco because I was like, well, this is the birthplace of activism, really. And you think about um, the Castro and you think about um, Oakland and just the Black Panthers. And there's just been so much activism, Berkeley. Um, and I, I, for me, it was actually great to be there for the Prudential panel and meet you guys and meet everyone on the panel um, at that particular moment, because it made me feel connected to the community. Thank you. It was a, it was was a very interesting um, experience for us going, we love going up to San Francisco and it was neat to meet everybody, but it was also, um, we were very excited to be out there, but it was also the day after the election. (laughs) So it it was, it was, it was like contrasting um, tones. Yeah. 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 So obviously the, the, change that has happened over the years in your life has, hasn't, has had an impact on you. And it seems like you now want to carry that message into and helping other people. And that seems to be one of your focuses right now. That's correct. So, 
it was so interesting. Um, this week, well, particularly Friday, like literally the day of the inauguration, um, you know, I started getting all these text messages and DM messages from members of the Native Sun community who, and some people who have reached out to, they were like, well, what are we going to do? And I thought, oh my God, like, <laughs> like this is real. And now I'm, you know, I have a couple of calls this week. Um, I'm going to do a town hall here in New York, um, February 15th. And it's really important, I think, that we get our voices out there. And so now I'm kind of charged with not only am I leading this movement for Black gay men that's based on inspiration and empowerment and celebrating each other, but also what is our strategy and what is our agenda for sustainability as we move forward. And so it's a bit daunting for me right now because it's like, whoa. I mean, I'm glad I started this when I did, but I feel safe and happy that there is a community there that is looking to me, but you know, to be a real leader, you have to listen. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm now in the process of shaping, like what would a town hall look like um, that I can then take across the country so that we can collectively create an agenda for sustainability, for change and to just be informed. I think that's that's awesome. For for our listeners who aren't familiar with Native Sun, would you could you give us a little bit of a insight into that? Absolutely. So Native Sun is a platform that I launched in 2016, and the name comes from James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Sun, which is a collection of essays that he wrote that was very critical of politics of social injustice of hollywood and kind of um stereotypes but also was con uh, constructive criticism about himself as a black gay man um, so i thought with jane you know james baldwin's notes on a native son what a perfect name for a movement that would inspire and empower um a community of millennials to octogenarians, um, professional, and not necessarily professional, could be students, um, black gay men to come together, have fellowship, and then eventually develop a mentorship program out of it. So we hosted the first dinner in November, um, the end of November, and the New York Times covered it, and Essence, and it was really, really powerful. Um, the Grio, a bunch of outlets covered it. And um, now I'm building for the business perspective, you know, um, what does it look like financially? What does it look like um, from a national perspective? And then what is it going to eventually look like um, as fundraising and developing a mentorship program? That's awesome. I think it's great. A theme that I'm seeing through everything that you're telling us is it seems like you, you – not only look for opportunities, but you embrace the challenges and try to work with them as opposed to against them. Yeah, I think you have to because, you know, to your point earlier, you know, the White House is the White House now. 
So that is not, it's different and it's, you know, jarring from what we had from the last eight years, but historically it's not jarring to what has has existed in this country. And, you know, I think about President Obama's farewell speech and it was really about how do you stay involved and how do we take things into our own hands? And I think we can sit around and be victims or we can sit around or, or we can get up and we can get busy and we can try to make a difference. And so I believe in that, like I believe in manifest destiny, like making it happen for yourself. That's awesome. Awesome. That's a great quote. (laughs) We'll have to include that in our show notes. So, um, we want to be respectful of your time. Where uh, can our listeners find more about you if they want to track your progress? So you can follow me on um, social media. It's at Emil Wilbekin. So it's E-M-I-L-W-I-L-B as in boy, E-K-I-N. Um, on Tumblr, it's worldofwilbekin.com. And then um, Native Sun is at Native Sun now on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. That's awesome. Thank you very much. And I have one last closing question. <laughs> I didn't, I had this pre-planned last night, but um, I didn't know you, you knew Lenny Kravitz. I was wondering, have you ever met Will Smith? <laughs> I have met Will Smith and he's really super cool. I mean, he and his wife and his kids, like to me, they're so awesome because first of all, to, for them to both be such big celebrities, like, you know, some of the biggest in Hollywood and to raise these kids that are creative, that know who they are, that are gender fluid and that are like breaking barriers and then like protesting, you know, like it's amazing. Like, I mean, I think they're real role models about how to be modern, connected, um, and still connected to the community, but making a difference in this world by being creative and living their art at the same time. They're awesome. Nice. That's cool. Will's another um, man I'm fond of. <laughs> so, so, sometimes I wonder why John and I are together. Fantasy <laughs> <laughs> alive, guys. <laughs> and Will Smith and I are both from Philadelphia, so that's there's our connection. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, well, um, Emil, we want to thank you so much for. We know how busy you are. We want to thank you so much for your time. We appreciate everything that you, you provided us uh, here today. I think it's going to be great for our audience to, to hear your story and hear how you've overcome some challenges and, and pretty much made opportunities for yourself. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing this. I think it's so important um, to hear these stories and be inspired and to know that, you know, you don't have to just be. You can move forward and exist in a way that you make a difference in your own life and in other people's lives as well. Absolutely. Thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah, I was going to say something, but I think you just summed it up so well there that we can't just be. Yeah. yeah exactly. We have to do. Yeah, if, we, exactly. if we want, we have to do. <laughs> so. Exactly. Thank we you. love a good story, just like Emil mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And that's why we thought it was so important to share his story with you. We hope it inspired you to want to do more and be more. Okay, we just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all all the healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so... (laughs) Uh,
From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.